All right, we're back. This is Plenary Session Special, Special Edition. We're doing the Malignant Book Club. This is the second of, I don't know, maybe eight or nine installments. I'm joined by Dr. Timothy Olivier. Hi, Vinaya. It's good to see you. Good to see you. How up, are you? Up close and personal. Yeah. <laughs> we have to sit very close together to order to get the framing. It's very unnatural. Very unnatural. Um, so, Timothy, how's it been going? Yeah, um, maybe we can start with, um, you know, I want to, to ask some personal question at the beginning of oh each of these. So okay, you so that? you're jumping right in. All right, we're talking about the book, yeah. Malignant. Is it coming in focus? I don't think so. All right, there it is, yeah. Malignant. This is, this is, what chapters are we going to cover, Timothy? So we'll cover chapter two, three, four, Okay. just to end the first part of the book. Okay, the first yeah. section of the book. Okay. Yeah, first section of the book. All right, I hope I remember what's in this book. Part one is called Cancer Drugs, The Outcomes They Improve and at What Price. Okay, we did the introduction, we did chapter one. Uh, let's get into it. All right, what do you want to start with? No, the question was about the, the process of writing. I know you mm. really like writing, mm. uh, you really enjoy that. Um, but I wonder for this book uh, specifically, did you plan it? Did, did you make a plan? Did you make, uh, um, what is your process? Do, do you write every day, every morning? Do you have a a kind of strict s schedule or is it more relaxed? I mean, general, general thought about that. So this book, I think, was written almost entirely on airplane flights, many of which to Europe, many of which to go visit, visit people like you out there in Europe. Um, and I think I did have sort of an outline, but it really kind of gelled as I started writing. I knew that I wanted to, there's some topics I wanted to cover. I mean, I wanted to cover surrogate endpoints, surrogate validation. I wanted to cover cost of drugs. Um, how much it costs to make a drug, how much it costs to manufacture a drug. I wanted to cover um, control arms because we had done so much work on control arms, post-protocol therapy, crossover. We had done sort of that defining work as to the types of crossover there were. Um, global oncology, some of the work that we've been doing in that space. I wanted to cover sort of all of these problems that we had been unpacking in many papers, hype, financial conflicts of interest, and then find a way to tie it all together to explain to the reader why why it is a single story and why bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer, the subtitle of the book. Um, but the actual writing process, I had an outline. I think I had one chapter written. And then uh, when I got the green light from the publisher to write the book, I think in a six-month period of time, the book was written predominantly on international airplane flights. Interesting. So, <laughs> so it took you a great amount of time to just to prepare the, the global plan, <clears throat> right? Or... Of course. Okay, okay. You know, the old Hemingway quote, long periods of thinking, short periods of writing. And so if you want to write something, you know, by the time I write something, it's usually fully conceived in my mind before I put pen to paper. Um, you know, we were talking about one of these days, I'll make a Zoom video of me writing something. But just this week, this weekend, I had this idea that had been percolating for a few days. And then I wrote it as a thousand word op-ed. And I think from the moment I started typing the first word to when I finished it was probably around 18 minutes which is very fast, but um, the whole thing was drafted in my mind kind of before I even set out to write it. So it was really just kind of articulating what I had already sort of thought about. And when I thought about it, it was on, you know, going for runs and bike rides and that kind of stuff. That's where I had thought about it. Okay, I think that's uh, interesting. I, I don't know if everybody is doing like that, but um, yeah. I'm sure listeners will, will like it. <laughs> so let's jump into, uh, into chapter two. Okay. So um, chapter two is uh, surrogate endpoints in, yes. in cancer. Yes. So Maybe first, can you can you speak maybe in very um, simple uh, simple definitions of what what is a surrogate? Surrogate endpoint, as my good friend Adam Sifu likes to say, is an endpoint that the patient didn't know was important until the doctor said it was. 
And what I mean by that is a surrogate endpoint is something that is measurable, quantifiable, uh, often numerical. You can wrap your hand around it, and it does have something to do with the disease in question. Um, and it's often used as a proxy uh, for what you care about. And of course, there's only two things patients care about, living longer, living better. Living longer is typically measured by overall survival, curative fraction, those kinds of things. Living better, health-related quality of life, patient-reported outcomes, all these things are sort of imperfect ways of assessing living better. Um, May I ask? Yeah. What, what, what is the need to have surrogate and not directly measure this uh, uh, endpoint? Yeah, that's the key question. And that's the question that I think these chapters will explore in, in the book. But um, I mean, first, let's agree what the endpoints are. Then a surrogate is something that's a stand-in, typically tumor volume, the size, um, the, the amount of tumor in the bloodstream. Uh, and there are different types of surrogates. There's the time to event surrogate. I'm sure we're going to talk about there's tumor shrinkage. Why do we do it? I think there's, to some degree, it's you have to have some surrogates. I mean, if you have a million candidate compounds you could be studying for potential cancer drug development, you can't run a phase three randomized control trial of every single thing somebody can dig up. Uh, you need some way to screen compounds for what's more promising, and surrogates do serve that role. I think that's why drug activity or tumor response was sort of initially created as a simple screening tool for what to pursue. Um, at other times, we use surrogates because we believe it expedites the answer. It speeds the drug to the U.S. market. We'll know sooner if the drug works. That's a belief. People have that strong belief, but as you know, Emerson, Chen, and I have kind of explored that belief. We will go into that. We'll go into that. Yeah. So, I mean, people use surrogates because they're easier to measure and they result sooner than the clinical endpoints you care about. At least that's what they say. Maybe you can give an example that you give in the book of a surrogate outside oncology, for instance, uh, uh, di diabetes or... Hemoglobin A1C. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, you know, I think uh, nobody... Uh, I mean, people with diabetes often can feel poorly when their sugars are very high, but it's often very difficult to feel the difference between the subtle shades of gray blood sugar levels that we do think are clinically important. There is a metric, the hemoglobin A1C, or glycosylated hemoglobin. It's sort of a, a type of average blood sugar in, in the bloodstream, uh, which will actually glycosylate the hemoglobin molecule, and it's used to track diabetes outcomes. It turns out it has a limited correlation, I think, with cardiovascular outcomes, which is a major cause of, of, uh, of, of, of morbidity and, and mortality in people with diabetes. It does track probably a little bit better as a surrogate for microvascular outcomes like neuropathy and retinopathy. Um, but it's something that we can be seduced by. I mean, you can forget about the patient and just think, I want that A1C at 6.4. I need to get it to 6.4 to the point where you actually crank up, um, you know, anti-diabetic drugs to the point where you can actually have higher rates of mortality. And I think we've had some randomized trials accord in advance. It's a little bit, you know, I'm a little bit two steps removed from that now. I'm Now I'm in oncology so deep, I've forgotten about diabetes to some degree. Okay, so if I get it generally, surrogate I, I standard or intermediary endpoints, so right. not direct endpoint, but supposedly uh, related to the endpoint of interest, right? Yes, and even more than that, that drug products or interventions that alter the surrogate commensurately alter the endpoint you care about. It's not just that it has a correlation, it's that if I improve this metric, I will make them better off. They will be better off as a result. That's what a surrogate is. Okay, so... Now let's move on to maybe more technical part, but I think that's very, very important for, for, for people to, to understand the, the real meaning of these endpoints. So let's start with the surrogates in oncology that um, uh, are talking about tumor shrinkage mm -hmm. or tumor growth. Okay. I mean, tumor shrinkage are you give a drug to 100 people 
and a complete response is people who have uh, uh, no more measurable lesions and normalization of lymph nodes. A partial response is 30% or more tumor shrinkage of, uh, of lesions, particularly the target resist lesions. Um, and, uh, and the sum of complete and partial responses is the response rate. Um, of 100 people, 30% of people had 30% or more tumor shrinkage. That's a measure of, tumor of, 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 of response or tumor shrinkage or drug activity. Um, for every single hematologic malignancy, it's almost as if there's a sort of a different response criteria, sort of unique for that hematologic malignancy, but they're all the same, some reduction in the measurable burden of, of, of liquid tumor or solid tumor. It's some reduction in tumor volume. And the reason I think that it's considered drug activity is that as a general rule, we don't think that happens by chance alone. People are just walking around and tumor shrinking all the time. We think there is a natural slow steady progression, you know, a lot of asterisks there because there is things like measurement error and spurious responses from measurement error, et cetera, we could get into. But um, we generally think a response is due to the thing you did that you weren't doing otherwise, which is giving this like very potent medication. So there's a very interesting story you, you talk about in the book about <coughs> how um, tumor response was uh, discovered. Wh what is the story about this? Uh, I think that's really um, interesting to, to, to know this story. Yeah, so this is the Mortel story. And um, I think I was first introduced to this by Tito Fojo, of course, uh, Columbia University, and he was the NCI program director for about a decade. Um, <clears throat> it's really important to know the story, and I think it's because we use a cutoff of tumor shrinkage. That cutoff is 30% or more. It's not 20, it's not 40, it's not 50, it's not 15, it's 30. Why is it that cutoff? And I, for the sake of time, I don't want to get into the whole story, but the story is in 1976, and it, I've heard it was a dinner party, but maybe it wasn't a dinner party. I heard it was a dinner party at Mortel's house. He put a mattress on the table. He put all these spheres. I heard they were marbles. And he rolled foam rubber on top. And that foam rubber was thought to simulate the subcutaneous tissue or just the skin. And he got 16, quote, experienced oncologists. They were all men, by the way. It was a gender-biased era. And they got their calipers out and they started doing what, you know, what I love to do at a dinner party, which is take some measurements. Um, no, <laughs> I don't know what kind of dinner party this was. Um, but they took measurements. And Mortel did some very simple math, but it was very elegant. And he was basically saying that if this is a 4.9-centimeter marble and a 5-centimeter marble you know, if I measure both of them, I might not be able to tell them apart reliably. But if it's a three centimeter marble and a five centimeter marble, I'll be able to, we'll all agree, like you and I will agree, I'll agree with myself, that marble is smaller than that marble. Um, and by picking a cutoff where I would agree with myself in blinded fashion, and you and I would agree, even though we didn't know the size of the marbles, um, he picked a cutoff big enough that we would agree that this was a difference in shrinkage. And that was where the cutoff comes from. I'm not explaining it. I could explain it a little bit better, but it'll take a much longer time. I think the, the very interesting point of the story, if I get it uh, right, yeah. is that it was not done, to, uh, it was not related to clinical endpoint. It was discovered for operational re reason, right? You say discovered, I would say it was uh, uh, created. Yeah, defined. Yeah, it was defined for an operational reason. It's what men with calipers could agree upon was bigger or smaller than one another in an era where you measure things with calipers through foam rubber because that's how they did it back then. They don't got CT scanners to measure. It never was meant to be a surrogate for living longer, living better. And in fact, it generally is a poor one. And, and to add some, something, we are still with the same cutoff, even if there were a, a little evolution uh, because it was uh, three-dimensional and now two, but 
it's still the same cutoff, right? Yeah, I think more, more or less. I mean, it's the same cutoff. People should go. I think it's on this channel um, in my lecture videos, the ten part series. I think lecture two or three, I'll show the cutoffs. But uh, to this day, we uh, resist has codified WHO eighty one and WHO codified um, the Mortel paper. We are using the exact same cutoffs that Mortel felt in this experiment many years ago. We're not beyond that. And that's why it's really important to say that when people act as if, yes, in general, people whose tumors shrink after an anti-cancer drug often feel better, but there's nothing magical about 30%. That was picked arbitrarily. And so we have to be very cautious about interpreting trials as a result. The next thing you, you talk about in, the, in this chapter is um, related to that, is the problem of what you will, will find if you do two CD scans. And you give a uh, very interesting example um, that happened with a drug that was developed in lung cancer, ro rosilatinib. Mm -hmm. has, how has the tiger lost its stripes? I think it was like tiger RCT or something. Um, they didn't do the confirmatory scan. And when they went back and did it, uh, they lost a lot of responses. But I mean, what's the point there? I think um, there have been a number of investigators that have shown that measuring the width of a tumor on a CAT scan, it's not like measuring your height which is very easy. It's like measuring the width of a cloud on a width of a cloud between your fingers looking up at the sky. It's not a perfect science. And so you and I will measure differently. I'll measure differently with myself. If you took the same person and put them in the scanner 10 minutes apart and had slightly different cross sections, we might measure differently. And all that means is that it's an, there's an opportunity of measurement error, measurement error. And that's important to know because, um, I mean, it's important to know because uh, uh, it might be yet another reason why this doesn't track with the outcomes we care about so much. Yeah. And the last point uh, you, you, that is important to, to describe for these endpoints of tumor shrinkage or tumor growth is how long will um, this tumor growth or tumor shrinkage will, will uh, last? Yes. The, the, what we call duration of response. Yeah. So among the fraction of people who achieve a response, the median time until they have progression is called the median duration of response. And progression-free survival is among everyone who enrolled in the study, the time until they achieve progression and or death, whichever comes first, that time to event composite endpoint. We're going to talk about, you know, that's a very complicated time to event and composite endpoint. But it's really important. You know, I find that, um, you know, part of why I wrote that chapter, the book and that chapter, and, you know, before that I wrote that article with Robert Kemp about surrogates and BMC cancer. The reason I wrote all those things was I found that, you know, most oncologists, seasoned oncologists, did not know these things. They don't know the definitions off the top of their head. They don't know the difference between, you know, time to event endpoints and response rate, which is not one. Um, they don't know that these cutoffs are incredibly arbitrary. Um, yeah. Yeah. So for for someone who, who, who is not uh, aware of this, yeah. it's a bit strange to think that if you have tumor shrinkage, you won't be you won't feel better. What do you what do you think about that? And you talk already about the threshold. There is nothing magical about the threshold, but um, and after we, we we'll get maybe deeper in that. But what you can th what you can say about that? How it is possible that you won't feel better if you have tumor shrinkage? I mean, I think I would say that there is a link. Like there is a link that you know people whose tumors disappear entirely often do feel a lot better. You know, there is a link. It's not like they have nothing to do with each other. And that's true of all surrogates. People whose A1Cs are incredibly controlled, easily controlled with diabetes medications, they often have better outcomes than people who didn't achieve that. Sure, these things do correlate. They're not picking, you know, the color of my pants or my shirt, the, the totally unrelated concepts. They're picking things that do track. The problem is, do, are, they so, are they so tightly correlated that any perturbation in the surrogate is a steadfast proxy 
for a change in the heart outcome? And the answer is they don't have that level of sophistication. So yes, people whose tumors shrink generally feel better, but a drug that shrinks tumors, you know, 65% versus a different drug that shrinks it in 32%, it's not, you cannot necessarily infer that you live longer, live better with drug A versus drug B. Depends on the tumor, depends on the correlation, depends on how they're measuring, depends on the, the patient selection, depends on all these things. And so these are often, and depends on censoring, which we can talk about, but these are often why that they're not perfect surrogates. So yes, I like my drugs to shrink tumor. I like tumors to stay shrunk. I don't like to see tumor. Sure, but I cannot always trust incremental differences in PFS that those are better drugs. I, I just can't. Okay, so now maybe let's move to other very important endpoints because they are very, very widely used in oncology. Uh, these are time to even oh, composite, yeah. oh, time to even surrogate endpoints. Um, I think the, the, the word composite also is important to, to define. Oh, yeah. Can you talk about may maybe mainly about maybe general de definition and maybe about PFS and DFS? Oh, good. Okay. So, I mean, in general, we have a class of endpoints called time to event endpoints. There are endpoints by definition. You've not experienced a time zero. That's why Kaplan-Meier curves start out at 100%. The most easy to understand is overall survival. Everyone's alive when you start the study. People die. When they die, the Kaplan-Meier drops. When we no longer know what happened to them, there's a tick mark. They're censored, and we follow them out in time. So that's a time to event endpoint, overall survival only. It's binary. You're either alive or you're dead, and we generally know that. And just to just to clari clar clarify, thing, uh, overall survival is not a composite endpoint. Correct. It so is time a to event endpoint. And this is not a composite. Endpoint. Correct. Okay. There's just one thing. Now let's get into composite. Composite means it's the time until one of several things happen, whichever happens first. And you know our friends in uh, um, the diabetes world often have a composite of you know uh, time until you have nephropathy or you have blindness, or your A1C goes up one, one point, you know, which are, which are not equal events. You know, one is, the first two are arguably more important to the person than the third. Cardiology has major adverse cardiovascular events, or MACE, a time to event composite endpoint. We have PFS. It's the time until you either, uh, it's the time until you die, if that comes first, God forbid. The time until there are new lesions on a scan, that confirms, if that comes first, God forbid. And the time until your tumor gets 20% bigger than the smallest it ever was, you could assume shrinkage or no shrinkage. I think for you to really see this, you should go back and look at these lecture videos I have because I have the visualization. Yeah. yeah. I think you, the, the, the example you provide with DFS is very, um, very interesting because you, you take the example of breast cancer, of every event you can have and they have um, not the same, it's not the same outcome. And yeah, one is death and one is new DCIS. So let's talk about DFS. So PFS is the time to event endpoint for people with metastatic or advanced disease whose disease is measurable on scan. And disease-free survival typically is in the adjuvant setting when we have surgically extirpated all the tumor and you scan someone any way you want, you won't find anything. And it's the time until the tumor recurs somewhere else, the time until there's de novo new cancer, the time until there's de novo precancer in the case of breast cancer, or the time until the person dies, whichever comes first. But of course, the time until you get another DCIS in the same or contralateral breast that's a very different endpoint than the time until you have a back met, you know, spinal met, or the time until you die. Those are very different endpoints. And so DFS, you know, we can talk about the correlations, but I'm sure you're going to yeah. get to it. Okay. So, no, I think it's important to, to, to understand that composite endpoints are many events, and the <coughs> events can be very different, uh, each, uh, each other. Um, now, maybe before going to even more, more technical parts, um, why is surrogate, uh, what is the state of surrogates? What is the proportion of surrogates used in, in cancer trials, in registration trials? 
um, why it's, it's important to know about surrogates mm. nowadays? Two thirds. So I think the papers I would cite is the paper I did with Chul Kim, 2015 Jam Internal Medicine, the paper in 2016 with Chul Kim in Mayo Clinic Proceedings. I mean, really, two out of every three new cancer drugs are entering the U.S. market because of a surrogate. One third response rate, one third PFS, and then one third OS or patient reported outcomes. So, yes. Two-thirds of our drugs are basing their use on these endpoints. They have huge importance. We have been seduced by them. We're in love with them. Every day I go, people talk about them. And the problem is, in the minds of many oncologists, they have confused that the surrogate is not a stand-in for what they care about that's imperfect. They believe it is the endpoint in and of itself that's valuable. And they are totally baffled by that. Okay, yeah. so let's assume I'm not convinced. Okay. Like, like you said. Good. Okay. Um, can you give me, you, you will give two examples, I, I just remind you, the bevacizumab example and gemtuzumab ozogomycin. Okay. And after that, can you explain um, what is the validation of, of surrogate? I think it's a very important part, very interesting part about, about the, the correlation and the work you, you did. Okay. But maybe I'm not convinced yet. I mean, okay, uh, let me give you the two how, examples. How is it possible that, uh, that a surrogate is not... Uh, so... Uh, and you're jogging my memory. It's been a long time since I've, you know, used these examples. But I mean, I mean, the breast cancer example is a good example. This is the case of Avastin in uh, breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer. And um, it was uh, initially propelled uh, to stardom, uh, Avastin, in combination with chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone, um, in a cooperative group study that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine where there was a large PFS benefit. And we didn't quite know about OS benefit, but we said, look, that PFS benefit is so big, you got to act on this now. There's a big PFS benefit. And the FDA ended up approving Avastin for combination with chemotherapy in the breast cancer setting. And doctors quickly, you know, liked it. Avastin washes down easy. I mean, of course, there are issues with hypertension and people have had stroke, but those are few and far between it. And Avastin is generally a drug with really good drug-drug interactions. Um, fast forward, there was a few post-marketing studies, Ribbon, Avado, and then there's a ZCOG study, um, uh, 2100, if I recall correctly. Um, and if you had all the three results, you saw that the PFS benefit in the ECOG 2100 study has gotten a lot smaller lot smaller in subsequent studies, which is a principle of, I think, empirical trials, which I talk about in the book. The other thing that happened is that the OS, the pooled OS is no, there's no OS, there's no OS benefit. So you have a drug that might improve PFS much less than you thought it did, no overall survival benefit, real cost and real toxicity. What do you call such a drug? Some people call it a marginal drug. No, no, no. That's called a harmful drug. You didn't live longer. You don't live better. It changes some radiographic endpoint that you don't feel, you don't know. And it does so very, very marginally. And the initial results were spurious. And it was eventually withdrawn by the FDA after a hearing in 2012. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting to have a, a concrete example because um, it, it, it's difficult to, to make this uh, just, uh, you know, in, in the ideas. So um, the next point you, you made, I think it's, it's an important one. How, how can you validate a surrogate? There are many steps. I think that important steps are pretty technical, but I think it's important to understand that. Yes, and I think this is, you know, a lot of the work we did, including a 2015 paper that I led uh, on surrogates in German internal medicine, um, where we were we really tried to, quant to try to articulate this. So, I mean, there are lots of things in cancer that are prognostic. Like, if you have this, you're likely to do better, and if you don't have this, you're likely to do worse. There are a few things that are predictive, which is that if you have HER2, you know, it has a prognostic impact, but also there's a therapy we can give you that if you don't have HER2, it actually doesn't work at all. We have actually studies that show that. So it not only tells you what might happen in the future to you, 
but it also tells you what therapies specifically benefit you. That's predictive marker. But a surrogate is a different marker. It's a marker that captures the variability in the endpoint you care about by variability in that endpoint. So it's, in other words, it says that drugs that increase PFS on average, do they increase OS? Is it something that I can hang my hat on for regulatory decisions and say, I, I got some confidence. I'm going to make somebody live longer because I'm improving their PFS. That's a surrogate. To validate it, here's what you do. You're going to be real clear what you want to look at. Real clear. I want to look at metastatic, triple negative breast cancer, and I want to look at chemotherapeutic drugs. So you want to specify the setting, adjuvant or metastatic, the tumor type, um, the line of therapy, and I think you need to also specify the class of agents. I think right now people are delusional. They think you can extrapolate correlations derived from cytotoxic drugs to targeted therapy, and my friend, you cannot have confidence in such extrapolations. So anyway, so you want to know the exact setting. Adjuvant metastatic, tissue type, line of therapy, and um, class of medication. Then you want to collect every single randomized trial of a therapeutic that has ever been done in that space. You need them all. And, you know, Bernie talked about that AML paper, yeah. which I'll talk about eventually on my channel, um, where one of the problems is the FDA is doing these studies, but they're only looking at the studies that they have in their pocket, things people submitted to the FDA. That is a huge selection bias. You cannot derive strong surrogate validation studies from the studies that you happen to have in your pocket. You know, you need to go and look for all the studies. You need a representative data set. And in my paper with... Um, with uh, Andre Vandross, Mauricio Buroto, myself, um, and I think Cho Kim was the last author on that um, in 2015, we found that you know they were only using about 50% of the relevant studies, that many studies are not being used. So you get all these studies, and here's what you do. On one axis, you plot the change in surrogate, the delta hazard ratio, the hazard, the, the, uh, sorry, the, the delta PFS, median PFS, the hazard ratio PFS, some measure of the change in surrogate between the two arms, that's one number. And on the other axis, you plot some measure of the change in the endpoint you care about. Survival, that's one number. Each trial becomes one dot, one dot on this plot. And it's literally plotting the change in the surrogate and the change in survival in randomized prospective clinical trials in the exact setting you care about. And then you ask, you perform regression analysis. You get that R squared, which is the coefficient of determination. And literally, the coefficient of determination tells you what percent of the variability in the endpoint you care about is captured by variability in the surrogate. And you want that to be really, really high because you want to say that if I know the surrogate is appreciably better, the endpoint I care about is going to be appreciably better. I know that to be true because most of the variability is captured. But what we find is often it is low, my friend. It's low. So if I understand well, the, the, the first thing is that um, many of these uh, validation studies are just done with, with one part of the trials. So they don't input <coughs> all the data. So your, I mean, your, your baseline is already skewed. It's, it's G-I-G-O, garbage and, in, garbage and, out. Yeah, and, it's bad. It's even bad. after that, yeah. your findings uh, in many settings, not all settings, but your findings uh, find that uh, in many settings you have a poor correlation. Yeah, I think... Um, in adjuvant, it's, uh, in some settings, it's, be it's better. Yeah, adjuvant cytotoxic lung, pretty good. Adjuvant cytotoxic colon, pretty good. But can I extrapolate the adjuvant cytotoxic lung to uh, Adora? I don't know. And in Adora, I suspect the problem will be that when they progress on the control arm, they're not going to get osimertinib. They're going to get gifitinib or whatever, some other inadequate TKI. Um, I think that'll be the problem there. So all those OS estimates will be taken with a grain of salt. That's a technical point. But to your broader point, what I would say is every single setting has a unique, a unique correlation. And if you want to find them all, you can go pull up that European Journal of Cancer paper that Allison uh, was the first author on where we kind of have an umbrella review of this topic. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, go on, go on. Very, very nice figure in it by Spencer Hay. 
um, but we've done some work to try to capture that. I just wanted to, to plug the, um, the Robert Kemp mm -hmm. um, argument. I think you, you, you talk it yeah, later, yeah. but okay. I think it's a good time to, to plug to it. Yeah, because uh, it's, it's just related to what you said. You want me to say it? Or you want yeah, to? Okay, yeah. so what I want to say is that I was working with Robert. Robert was, he was you before there was Timothy. He was, <laughs> he was the first person. He was the first person who read my first book who came out to work with me, and I think he stayed for a summer in Oregon, and he was an Oxford medical student. By the way, side note, I got to tell this story. Um, you know, when you have a patient who is in, having a tough time, you know, and you are about to go in the room, um, but whenever you're working with a student or a trainee, obviously you send the student to training the room. Robert Kemp would sometimes go in ahead of me, and he goes in with that, you know, just that sort of Oxford British accent, that very proper British accent, and he'd talk to the patient, and I'll tell you, every time I'd go in after, the patient was like, oh boy, I feel so relaxed and so at ease and so comfortable. And I was like, what is Robert doing? I mean, he has good bedside manner for sure, but he's got that killer accent. And so people loved it. Yeah. And so I, I, I don't think I've ever told him on a show. Um, so I mean, and he was a very smart guy, but he made a really interesting point. And his point was that, um, you know, everything you're saying about surrogate validation makes sense to him. So he accepts that. And he says, but if you really think about it, it takes so much effort to validate a surrogate for a certain class of agents. You need to have so many randomized trials and such long follow-up that you can prove that the change in surrogate correlates with change in survival. And we have so many new drugs coming up, different classes, that by the time you validate the surrogate for the new drug class, it will be too late. In other words, it's easier to just measure survival because it takes even longer to validate the surrogate. And so all these people seduced that they can use surrogates for easy drug approval, they don't realize they need to run 20, 30, 40 randomized trials where they know the surrogate and the hard endpoint for that class of medication. And that's gonna take them 15 years. They might as well just use the hard endpoint in the time being. And it's also related to, to the last part of uh, this chapter. Um, do sur because surrogates sometimes supposedly um, accelerate accelerated your approval. Yeah. Is it right or not? Uh, so with Emerson Chen, you know, who's now faculty at uh, Oregon Health and Science University, we took a lot of time to try to philosophically think through that. And I think the more you think through it, it is a much more difficult question than you think. And here's why. The clinician's intuition is that my patient has a response that, or they may or may not have a response, they may or may not, pro or they may or may not progress, and then they'll die. And that's the order of events in my individual patient. But in a randomized controlled trial or in an uncontrolled study, the order of events is very different. People are enrolling over time. They're being assessed for the endpoint over time. You have to follow them over time. So if your endpoint is response rate, you do realize the FDA is going to want to have some metric that the median DOR, the time of response, is durable before they give you approval. So not only do you have to wait until everyone responds, you also have to then wait among the responders. What's the time until the median person relapses? And that takes a lot more time than you think. Actually, a lot more time than you think. And the more we started you know, I've been thinking about this a lot on some bike rides, and um, the more I started to think through that the, that, the, that the trial level time versus the individual time are very different philosophical concepts, um, that's when I, I reached for Emerson, and Emerson built some big data set, and then we sort of ran some sort of meta-regression studies. And long story short, we tried to estimate, like, how much drug development time do you actually save when you use these surrogates? And the answer was sobering. You know, the answer was in an eight- or nine-year time horizon, you're trimming about 11 months, and you're trimming that in the frontline setting where PFS will save you time over OS, but you're not trimming it in ladder lines. Actually, I even believe there are probably some situations, maybe we should work on this, 
there are probably some situations where use of response rate in the third or fourth line actually takes longer than a randomized controlled trial in the third or fourth line because in randomized trial for overall survival, because overall survival is always capable of accruing, whereas here you have to wait for the response and then wait for the median DOR among those who respond. So it's actually kind of very technical. You should read the paper, people should read the paper that we did with um, Emerson in Gem Internal Medicine uh, and read the book, of course. We try to put it together, but I think it is a fallacy. Um, the other thing I want to say is this. Um, often I find people believe things. This is about belief. People believe things. You know, I've talked about this before. People believe things very ardently. They believe that surrogates save a lot of time. They always say that, like, yeah, you know, everything you say, VP, is right, but, um, you know, if we didn't use surrogates, we'd have to wait a lot longer for drug development. And every time somebody says something that to me, I always think, like, okay, you're saying that because you heard it from someone, and they heard it from someone else. But why do you say that? And, it's, and you put someone pressure on them, they'll, they'll, they'll crack because they don't know why they say that. And then, you, then that led me to kind of do that work. Yeah. Okay. So um, this is the, the end of this chapter. And the next chapter, we'll keep uh, talking about surrogates, but okay. how the use and misuse of surrogate. Maybe take a me message about definition about surrogate, what listeners should, should get, uh, what is important, what is more important to to you about uh, surrogates? Do you have any? I guess the take home message is this, where somebody says, um, you know, even though survival wasn't better, PFS was better, and that's really important to people. Well, I'm sorry, survival is really important to people, and living better is really important to people, but PFS is neither. And if you really think you've improved how well people live, then show me some good health-related quality of life longitudinally without any dropout, without any censoring that we've talked about in a prior discussion. If you really think you've improved how they live. And if you really think you've extended their life, then show me you've improved their survival. And by the way, they often say this and they say that, you know, we need to have so many drugs for this condition because it's so lethal. It's so lethal and you have such a new amazing drug, but you can't improve survival? You can't improve it? You need to rely on PFS, which is neither quality of life nor living longer. And so I think we must really resist, you know, what's this new melanoma drug that was just approved? Yeah, lag three. Lag three. Yeah. Where's the OS Relative. benefit? What's the OS benefit? There's no for now. And what's the health-related quality of life benefit? No. Right. And then what's the post-protocol therapy? To toxicity, toxicity is worse. Yeah, that's what I thought. So, I mean, is this an advance? I mean, it's an advance for the people who are collecting the money, um, it, you know, but it, and, and I haven't taken a deep dive into it. I, I, I'm scared to. But, uh, but I think the first question is people should ask themselves, do my patients live longer? Do they live better? And the answer is PFS is neither. Who, ta who told you PFS was either of those things? It's not. And then the more you understand about surrogates, you will have, um, your confidence will be eroded. It's going to just, t you know, sometimes I see these houses, houses built on the beach and then the water keeps washing the sand out from under them and eventually they collapse. And that's how you'll feel, I think, after you read these two chapters. Okay, so <laughs> let's move now. We, we will go deep uh, in other flows related to surrogates in this chapter. chapter I just want to make one yeah, note. Yeah, that yeah, there's, yeah. A lot, there's a lot that we, we covered very quickly, but this chapter is a big chapter and there's a lot we didn't even get to talk about. Because it's a deep chapter. Yeah, we, we, we won't... Just give them the teaser. Yeah, we, they gotta, we, they have to the people they to gotta buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they gotta buy the audio, the audio book. They gotta buy the book. Gotta buy the book. Yeah, they gotta buy the book. We don't cover everything. You have to of buy course, it. you have to. Um, so in chapter three, you will um, talk about um, how surrogate are used, and you will talk about two paths of approval, and also the, the language of approval. So <coughs> there's the accelerated approval pathway, regular approval pathway mm -hmm. and also the language of reasonable 
likely to predict. Yeah. Can you, so can you speak about that? I guess I'd say some, one of the misconceptions is people think that every time you approve a drug based on a surrogate, they always get that accelerated approval. That's not true. So here's what it is. We have accelerated approval and we have regular or traditional marketing authorization, regular approval. Accelerated approval is made on the basis of a surrogate thought reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit and it is provisional and it is contingent on further studies demonstrating efficacy. A regular approval is sometimes made on the basis of overall survival or patient reported outcomes, but it's sometimes made on the basis of a surrogate. But in this case, it's based on a surrogate that's quote, established. It is an established surrogate. And uh, in this chapter, I get into the weeds as to what these things mean. Maybe can you, because you work on that. So you work yeah. on the, the- Which part you want yeah, first. Yeah, on the, um, when surrogate are really used for regular approval and accelerated approval, and when, when they are used, are they validation study? Yeah, so I think I've already introduced the idea that two-thirds of the time they're using this. So uh, among regular approvals, 50% are based on surrogate. Among accelerated approvals, 100% are based on surrogate, as you'd expect. Reasonably likely to predict when you look at the quality of, uh, of surrogate validation in that space, and we did, Chul Kim and I, in a paper in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, I think Strength of Validation of blah, 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 um, 2016, um, you will find that it means, it means very little. I mean, reasonably likely to predict means that somebody got a feeling in their gut that it's gonna predict. And they often have very poor or absent surrogate validation studies. I think half of them have no such validation study at all. And some have very low levels of evidence or very weak correlation coefficients. And I think the FDA has conceded that it just means that Rick Pazder has a gut feeling that we ought to do this. That's all it means, very low level of evidence. In a later paper that's not in the book, but that Emerson published, we actually looked at how they're expanding the use of surrogate. They just keep expanding. They take more and more surrogates they never took before. That undermines their argument that this is an appeal to precedent. In the regular or full approvals, when they use a surrogate, they have pre-specified um, strong correlation coefficients, strong coefficients of determination that are very similar to the German ICWIG group, and the FDA has specified in slides. Um, and we find that generally, I forget the number off the top of my head, but it's less than less than one in three. Less than 30% of the time do they actually adhere to their own stated regulatory standard. They're in violation of their own statistical standard that they themselves have put forth at conferences when they use these surrogates. These surrogates are also often unvalidated, have weak correlation, et cetera. So the overall point here is that if the FDA says this is a valid surrogate, you should have some doubts. You have very little confidence it's a valid surrogate. Um, and they are often falling short of holding these companies to high standards here. Um, so yeah, you give the you give two examples. You give the example of the Bolero two study, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important to give the example because we will talk about later. And you also um, uh, explain the work of uh, the work of Stephen Walshin and colleagues um, about post marketing post marketing studies. Yes. Okay. So I guess what I would say about Bolero is Bolero is uh, Everlimus plus Eximestane versus Eximestane. Um, I think it was by Baselga and colleagues. Isn't it a Baselga paper? And then the follow-up papers in the Annals of Oncology a few years later, and I think the original was 2012, New England Journal. Um, there's a PFS benefit for sure when you give the mTOR inhibitor with eximestane. Uh, there ain't no OS benefit. And in long follow-up, there ain't no OS benefit. And yet, in contrast with Avastin, which had a PFS benefit, no OS benefit, which got an accelerated approval, had a post-marketing commitment, Everlimus got a regular approval, no commitment. It remains on the market to date, so it's still on the market. Of course, still on the market. And it's being used now post PI3 kinase inhibitor, 
which it doesn't have data for at all. You know, it's being used for novel purpose. People invented this new use of, of Everlimus. Okay, uh, they literally, I mean, they need, probably should have run a different trial. One of the reasons why, you know, the question is, how does it have a PFS benefit and no OS benefit? I think we'll talk. To, we'll talk about it in a, yeah. maybe in the second, third part yeah. of the book, fourth part I of the book. Sense no, just in a few oh, minutes. A few minutes. Okay. Okay. Um, censoring. Oh, censoring is in this chapter. Yeah. I thought censoring was in the third part of the book. No. Nice. I put nice, it up yeah. early. Okay. Yeah. I, I wrote the book a few years ago. I forget. Um, okay. So that's the Bolero part. The Woloshin Woloshin Schwartz part, and I think the great Lisa Schwartz has passed away since the writing of that uh, paper. Was really a paper about. You know, and and I want to say that Wolosh and Schwartz, the Government Accountability Office, um, and uh, some papers since the writing of my book. I mean, all these people are finding the same thing, which is the FDA says you got to, and they have some promise, and the companies like often don't fulfill the promise. And when they don't fulfill the promise, the FDA doesn't say, "Hey, I'm sorry, trying to revoke you." They often just like, you know, don't do anything at all. Recently, I think in the last year, we've seen some change out of the FDA. They got some fire in their belly, and they're actually got some drugs coming off the market. Um, and we wrote that article um, on the ODAX meetings. Mark Lithgow and I, I think, in Gem Oncology, um, maybe Logan Powell's an author. Logan Powell, Mark, and I, Gem Oncology, they are trying to show that they have teeth, but they're still, you know, they do a very, very poor job. You might have the stats written down. Um, they do a poor job of enforcing these commitments. And actually, I think, I actually think. Regular approval is worse with a surrogate. Here's why. Not only is it an unvalidated surrogate, there ain't never a confirmatory study. At least accelerated approval, there's some confirmatory study. And I actually secretly think that they're trying to give more approvals by the regulator pathway so that they can absolve themselves, wash their hands of monitoring these confirmatory studies. The easiest way to avoid the blame of approving products that don't work is to never, ever assess it again. Wash your hands of it. Okay. So... <laughs> um Maybe we'll uh, skip this part and the listener will go down. But maybe we can speak about censoring because the Bollywood trial is very interesting because it was uh, approved with regular approval with a PFS benefit and you told that it never showed to have an overall survival benefit. But um, this PFS benefit also has something very interesting. We're back. You can't do anything in this life without an interruption. Okay, Timothy, what were you what were you asking me? What were oh, you asking yeah. me? Yeah, so you 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 give the the example of Bolero two trials that um, yeah and censoring had, yeah and oh censoring. Yeah. yeah okay so I think the point that you want to get from me and by the way we haven't we've actually never planned this this is entirely impromptu is that fair to say it's impromptu but I took some note from the book it's not just I uh, see but you, out you, of the blue. no but your questions we, we, are but yeah, well, we, yeah. no, we didn't we no, didn't no, we're no. we're not in collusion no, no, no. we're not in collusion. There's no collusion it's here. Prepared. It's not prepared. That's why I barely remember what's in this book. Okay, I think the idea with Bolero is the following. Um, there, people always ask, how do you have a PFS benefit and no OS benefit? And one of the things that you could say is that the correlation coefficient is weak, and that's the most proximate explanation is that it, you know, uh, changes in PFS do not always explicate or capture changes in OS, and that's why this is one such example. That's one explanation. But the deeper explanation is why is that the case? And it could be that PFS and OFs have some sort of variable correlation. But the other option is maybe we're not even measuring PFS, the real entity PFS. Why might that be? In Bolero, if you were assigned to the intervention arm, you were much more likely to drop out in the first few time intervals than if you were assigned to the control arm. I think that's because Bolero is a toxic drug that gives people a little bit of a shove, a little of a shove. And if you put atropine instead of Everlimus, you know, you will um, have achieved the same outcome, knock a few people out. Those people you knock out 
they're not going to be as healthy, wealthy, and wise as the people retained. They're going to be slightly different, and that is what we call informative censoring. People should go back and listen to our discussion. I think what is important here is to understand that if you drop out, if you withdraw your con consent, you won't do the CT scan that you should have done, and, and so you, you, you can't capture the event. If the event occurs, you, ca you can't capture it. That's right. Am I explaining it well? That's absolutely right. So that you're dropping out. Dropping out is related to how you're doing. And then once you drop out, they can no longer assess you for the endpoint, PFS. They average the, P the, P they average the endpoint of the people who didn't drop out. And of course, that's going to be better because those are people who tolerate the medicine better, who are doing better, who are healthier, wealthier, wiser, you know, those kinds of things. Not wealthier, wiser, but you know my point. They're, they're doing better in life. Um, than the people who dropped out. And that is the potential for informative censoring to affect the outcome. And with Usama Bilal, we, I think we proved that in a set of, a, uh, in a paper, um, where did that paper come out? European Journal of Cancer, maybe 2012? Or? Discussion advised. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good. Uh, Progression-free survival, oncologist discretion advised yeah. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it basically kind of modeled what would happen under alternative assumptions, and it showed that that PFS benefit would vanish. Yeah. Okay, so I think we took uh, some deep dive in surrogates and some technical issues, but I, to me, they are very important. Uh, as you said, to be able to talk to your patient, to be able to inform your patient about what is the, the goal of the prescription. I think to go inside this, uh, all these details is really important. Oh, I think um, it's the most important, maybe some of the most important chapters for oncology fellows. And the, the last part of this uh, chapter, um, you address some comments from uh, Francesco Pignati in the BMG yeah. um, about um, what, can, what can someone could argue in favor of Suriate. So the, the first argument is that uh, it's difficult, if not impossible, to have improvement in overall survival because of the dilution of survival. Can you explain this and what you would answer to that? Yeah, so... I guess I was shocked to see, I mean, Francesco Pignetti is the uh, EMA director, and I was shocked to see that he has a whole bunch of reasons why he justifies the current paradigm, which I, the, the whole purpose of the book is to point out the limitations of. But one of his arguments is that, well, you know, it's really hard. There's so many life-prolonging drugs that a drug that improves PFS, it's very hard for that drug to show an OS benefit because that benefit is diluted by all the subsequent therapies. But I think, oh, shit space we ran out of space on the on the disc so now we go to the other disc okay that means we're talking too long so we're going to wrap up after this so i think francesco pignetti's point is that uh any pfs difference is washed away by subsequent lines of therapy and so it's asking too much to ask for an os benefit but for me that would be like that's a that's a crazy thing to say that would be as crazy as somebody saying, hey, listen, you're running a marathon. I got a new energy drink. You drink the energy drink. You're going to be like the first four miles. You are going to crush it. You're going to be way faster than you otherwise would be. And then you say, well, I'm going to finish the marathon faster. And they say, no, 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 you're going to finish at the same time. I say, what? What do you mean I finish at the same time? Why is that? It's because, well, the gains you get in the beginning will be diluted um, by all the subsequent miles that you run slower. Um, would you want this new energy drink? I say, I'd rather pace myself and get the, if I'm going to get to the end point at the same time, why do I want to rush for the first four miles and then lose my energy and lose my steam for the subsequent miles? And, and, and that's really what he's saying, because if the PFS gains do translate to OS benefits, then they're real. And if they don't, if you can achieve the same OS with all the old drugs, what do I need the new drug for? 
your po the other point you are addressing is um, the argument saying that um, a drug with a good response rate, with a huge response rate, um, mm. will always be uh, better and will always uh, lead to overall survival benefit. Yeah, I think that that's something people believe, but it's just not true. I mean, you can just look at uh, iodine-131 tocitumumab, which I think I wrote a paper on in Gem Internal Medicine, which has like a 60-plus percent response rate and now has been yanked from the U.S. market. I mean, you can look at the fact that drugs with higher response rates don't always improve overall survival. Um, I think that's what I would look there. Yeah, and, and you, you, you made a work with the emission chain mm -hmm. about among drugs uh, approved based on the response rate outcomes, uh, uh, you know, unexceptional outcomes. Yeah, yeah, so I think that paper um, was making this point where, you know, people talk about these drugs with this huge effect size, but the average drug approved on the basis of a response rate has a 40% PR rate and a 6% CR rate. I mean, we're talking about modestly beneficial drugs. To put that in context, imatinib in phase one had a 98% CR rate in phase one. Okay, that's a real, that's huge, but you know, 40% PR, 6% CR. And then in a paper that's not in the book, but we extended that, Allison did something really clever. She took all those drugs approved based on response rate. And for each one, she looked into literature to see what was the response rate for an existing therapy that would be the best therapy you otherwise would give your patient. And the answer was, you know, as you know, almost all the times this International Journal of Cancer paper it was quite comparable, almost the same response rate. Sometimes the older drug had a higher response rate, which really tells you you have equipoise and you could do a randomized trial, I think. Okay, so um, I think we are done for chapter two and three. Chapter four, actually, um, you go a bit deeper in uh, the um, cost of cancer drug, but uh, maybe you already addressed that in other lecture. I, I don't, maybe we'll go to um, the part two next you time. You wanna go straight to part two? We, okay. We will, see, we will see, we will see. Maybe we'll do chapter chapter four before, but. Uh, we were supposed to do it, but we got tired. So such is life. But it's, um, it's a, you just go deeper, um, deeper than chapter one yeah. in some issues. Um, the CAR T issue. Yeah, the CAR T issue and, yeah. the, and, the, and the infectious disease uh, drugs. You remember that? cost of uh, generic drugs example i don't know if i do remember that <laughs> i hope i remember it yeah, um yeah. so what do you think about these first three chapters so i think it's a very good introduction about um about the general landscape of cancer drug benefit of cancer drug very transformative drug like imatinib and the average uh, benefit of uh, of drugs um, the cost also, you, you, s you spoke about the cost, yeah. it's really important. And the surrogate, I think it's, it's really so important to, to really understand what means those surrogates because we are always, um, we are always informed yeah. by papers, articles, speaking about that. But if you don't really understand what does it mean, uh, you won't be able to decide and to explain it. Uh, for me, that's really the core issue. I think is one of the things I struggled with in conceptually thinking about the book, which is that, you know, these two chapters have to be in there, but do they have to be two and three? And my fear was that a reader would read first chapter and they'll be into it because first chapter I think is very engaging. Then chapter two and three is like on these very technical issues. And I was afraid that they'd be like, oh my God, my head hurts. So I tried very hard to try to like take this very tricky stuff and try to break it apart into like 10 different parts and make it sequential, make it logical. Um, but the alternative was to move this to the end of the book and move something else to the beginning of the book. But you knew I couldn't do that. I think it's difficult because yeah. uh, uh, it's important to have this background to understand Correct. what will be coming in the next parts. But uh, you are right, it's, it's technical. 
even yeah. the censoring part it's technical but it's so um it's so important for our daily decision so in a way it's very technical but you you can't avi avoid that that's then that was the conclusion i reached which is that i could move something else up front that would be more engaging but then the reader would be it would be longer before the reader learns these things and if the if the reader doesn't know these things then interpreting everything is going to be fraught and practically doomed but so maybe for listeners maybe next episode will be less technical less technical but this one i think was uh, very yeah. very important so until next time till next time on that positive note on that positive note <laughs>